This episode of Security Management Highlights is brought to you by Ray Secure, leaders in real-time 3D imaging technology to keep businesses and their people safe and productive. Learn more at raysecure.com. The goal I had when I came here, and this is what I mean, I think I think I I hope I'm I'm achieving. It feels like I am, but you never really know until after it's done. Um, is to have security be baked into the organization and not bolted on. So flexibility became the, the, the key word. And really, we've evolved as a company, Chuck. Uh, there's no expectation now that everyone is back to the office at any point in time. We've maintained a permanent flexibility. All that and so much more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Ralph R.C. Miles is the Global Director of Safety and Security for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. He has more than 25 years of private sector experience in design, development, and implementation of comprehensive security investigations and intelligence strategies in a variety of business climates and organizational cultures. Prior to his civilian career, Miles spent nine years serving as an officer in the U.S. Army in a variety of assignments around the world. Mr. R.C. Miles, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Today's topic is battle readiness, maintaining operations in conflict zones. Now, I'm going to parse this a little bit, RC. Uh, I didn't say maintaining security operations specifically for a reason. As the director of global security for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, you're really an enabler of general operations. In other words, through security and through your leadership, all operations can continue for the foundation. And that's a little different than talking about just security operations. Uh, you operate in about 45 countries and, and your number one concern is the care of patients. Tell me how you view this. I, I, I believe you have a model that's really kind of based on local solutions first. Yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, I am, like many security professionals, uh, a, a technical voice in that I mean, we, I provide expertise in my field um, to the leadership. Um, I'm one of many people within the organization that's very concerned about this, but but our fundamental model is something that fits very well, in my opinion, with security um, structure, which is we don't bring in a lot of expatriates. We typically operate with people from that country, from that culture. What we bring in is expertise, best practices, resources, and we raise the level of care for our patients. Um, the idea really is to just get them up to the standards that as close as we can to what you see in the more developed world. Um, we have 1.6 million patients in care, um, the majority of which actually are in Africa, which is uh, a pretty big challenge. And the only way this works when you have so many cultures, so many languages, sometimes within one country, um, so many different points of view is you're going to have to work with the local resources. Um, that said, just like with our medical model, the security model is designed around the idea of getting them to come up to a much higher level and, and a better standard of performance that fits within and adapts not only the company culture or organization's culture, but also the culture of the, of the country and, and down to the community. In some places we're operating where, in areas where it's a long ride on a dirt road to get there. So you have to be adaptive. You have to use the local people. Otherwise, patients don't come to you if you can't fit into their model their culture. So we're very careful about that. And it's worked very well. Um, 
everywhere I've been with the organization, I've, I've seen it and it's an incredibly effective model. And uh, it, it, in many cases, we are providing as an organization best practices that are being adapted by an entire country. From a security perspective, what we're bringing for them is the kind of guidance, you know, expertise and knowledge that they can adapt into where they are and what they're dealing with. So yeah, I, I think the local, I've always, I, I'm a strong believer that you have to adapt to local realities on the ground. There is no cookie cutter in our business. Uh, at the same time, you don't improve things by staying just the way they are. You have to be an advocate for change. And that's one thing that AIDS Healthcare Foundation is really good at is being an advocate for change. In my case, my advocacy uh, from, from my professional perspective is to raise the standard of security in the organization. Now, I've been saying this for 30 years, and people used to think I was crazy when I said it. This is my quote. All security is local, all security is personal, and all security is now. Because, you know, the FBI, bless their heart, they don't really know what's going on in my neighborhood. They like to think they do, but I know best how I interact with my neighbors, how I interact with different people in the community. So this model is really the only model that works. And you said something in your street, you want to bring best practices to this locale we're, we're at. Do you sometimes find that the best practice is what works, but might not be a quote, higher standard, because it's all about adaptability and operations and operations means it has to flow and has to work. Yeah, sometimes we do. Um, it's kind of interesting because in some environments uh, where, let's just take something as simple as a camera system. You're gonna put a camera system in, a, in, in any given country. You would think that that would be fairly simple. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, Besides the regulatory requirements um, that exist and that vary from country to country, there's also the general concern of um, surveillance. And in some cultures, cameras are used by the state to monitor, excuse me, monitor people. And the result of that is they don't trust cameras with good reason because those cameras have been used not to enforce law, not to maintain order, but as part of a surveillance internal security state. And so you have to do some selling sometimes of that because they're, they're, people are uncomfortable with that. Um, another one that I like to, to point out is, um, is, is security guard operations. I have been in locations where I walked up to, to look at a security guard and my first realization was, okay, I think we have a challenge here. This person doesn't have any shoes. Now that sounds so simple but a security guard without shoes is not going to go patrolling around out the exterior of a building. They're going to pretty much stay where they are um, because if they don't have the shoes, they're not, especially at night, they can't even see what they're stepping on. And in some places it can be quite, quite challenging. So just raising some things that you and I would be very fundamental. Everybody has to have boots. Okay. Those can be some interesting cultural discussions because the, they, they, a lot of people say, why did they have to have boots? I said, yeah, they're walking around in some pretty rough brush here. We need to protect them. They, if, if they don't have that, they won't be able to do it. Or the same thing with lighting. Really simple thing. You know, people don't want to go out patrolling in areas, especially remote areas, when they can't see. So just something as simple as let's bring the lighting up to speed can be a, a cultural challenge because the, we don't have to worry about it because, you know, it's, it's dark. Yeah, that's kind of the point. It's dark and we need people to be able to see in order to do their jobs. Let's talk about how this works. Tell me how you start 
building the relationships to start this dialogue to get people to engage. Because really, that's the first step, isn't it? You have to get the engagement and then modify as you go. Well, you have to start with credibility. Um, you have to be seen as credible in your field. I think it's important that you take the steps uh, as you build in your career. Anyone building this career in our field needs to take the time to build their credibility in terms of their knowledge of what best practices are um, and, and being seen as a resource to be able to answer those hard questions. Um, and having logical, reasoned arguments for why we need to do things, uh, as opposed to this is just the way it's done, or my other favorite, um, you should do it because I think that's the best thing to do, neither of which are good arguments. But when you have credibility, you can not only, you should be able to stand up to a rigors of questioning arguments. If somebody asks a question, you should be able to respond in a manner that allows you to, to justify your, your, your discussion point, one. The second thing I would point out is, and I think it's important, is you build credibility by listening. So I actually have a program for my, uh, when I hire new managers um, that I use. It's, uh, I don't know if it's appropriate to say this, but it's based on the book, The First 90 Days. I used it when I came here. It's a, it's a great program. And I spent the first 30 days just going around interviewing key people, literally from the CEO all the way down to clerks. Um, throughout the country and, and around the world and asking them some basic questions about business. Really not focusing on the security. My last question, if great questions would be, what do you think I should focus on first? And he analyzed that data and I realized, you know, again, I've got a picture of where each level solved the security of their organization and what their concerns were. And that helped right there because then I, I had a better understanding of what I was dealing with. I had not worked in the nonprofit field before and the AIDS Healthcare Foundation is fairly unique and they, they have pretty divergent interests and actions and activities. So it's almost like a, reminds me sometimes of GE uh, back in the day. So um, that helped. Listening helps. Being credible helps. And the third thing is, is when you're bringing a culture and something new to a new organization like I had to, the word that nobody wants to hear, it's called patience. Rome isn't built in a day. You're not going to change an organization overnight because you could be, you know, have been served in the, been an army ranger, served in the FBI and the CIA, and people are still going to resist your ideas if they don't think that they match their needs and you haven't made a good case for them. So I always believe and try to practice patience. Now, it's my experience that when you're practicing patience, it's really tough because you really want to move things faster. But you can't. You have to move at the pace of the organization. Things that were people said no maybe two or three months ago, they're saying yes now. So being credible, listening, and then being patient, those are the three elements I've found probably the most helpful in trying to introduce security into this organization. I agree 100%. You've said it very, very well, my friend. Now, let's talk about some conflicts you've had in the field. I, I think uh, I'm going to assume you've had some challenges with Ukraine and Russia conflict right now, because I'm sure you operate there. Tell us what's going on with that particular conflict, maybe how you've had to adapt your operations to make everything work. So a little background first. Um, I spent my first nine years as a young man in the U.S. Army as a tank officer and uh, served in the United States and overseas in Korea. And I I'm, I'm also was a 
assistant professor for military science at Texas State University. And I taught military history. Uh, I have my degree in military history, in history. So I ended up in part of my career development. I ended up doing a lot of, in, of intelligence work, believe it or not, after I got out of the service. And I had been watching, we've been watching the situation between the Ukraine and Russia for some time. Obviously, there was a seizing of Crimea and I believe it was 2014 and then the invasion, the, the um, asymmetrical invasion of the eastern part of the country. I had been to Ukraine. I had seen the, uh, it was one of my first trips in Europe. And I'd seen the challenges that we were facing there. Long about December, we started to see the buildup. And that's the first time, actually December is when I started telling everybody the Russians are going to invade. That's when I started communicating. So we need to be prepared for the Russians. I think there's a chance they're going to invade. That was met with some some degree of skepticism. Uh, nobody would have really believed at the time, but as I was discussing with some of my old army buddies um, and uh, and and my brother actually, who was a counterintelligence agent in the army, Theo Miles, they <laughs> we said nobody has a hundred thousand troops on the border as a training exercise. You just don't do that. The cost of operations is so high. So we'd already experienced had experience with conflicts in Myanmar and and ethiopia myanmar caught us off guard ethiopia we saw building we prepared for by the time we got to ukraine we're working on our third effective war so we started preparing the team started doing the things necessary to get them ready we have templates that we use to establish um, communications make start getting them funding for supplies extra supplies looking at the supplies they were going to need and we started meeting with the leadership the european bureau um, leader um, Zoya was fantastic, and so was Yaroslova, who was a country program director. And as I said, I'd been there, so I'd met some of the people, and they were, you know, they were very interested in hearing what I had to say, and we had them prepared. About four days before the actual invasion, um, I did a briefing for everybody who could dial in by Zoom for, who was based in the Ukraine. Uh, and through a translator, I explained to them what a standard conventional attack would look like. I didn't know that they were going to hit that soon. I just wanted them to understand you're going to see airstrikes and missile strikes and artillery, then tanks and infantry, kind of the flow of these things that the Russians haven't really changed since the, end of the, since the Cold War. And we used that information and, and also making sure we had exact locations for where people lived, primary locations, secondary and tertiary locations, I told them moving further towards the west because I, I actually thought they were going to come in from the east. But everybody had a primary, secondary, primary residence and two backup locations that we had plotted out. The thing that didn't happen that I thought would was that they didn't take down their internet. So much for the vaunted, you know, cyber skills of the Russian military. I thought for sure they'd shut, they'd go after their internet, but they didn't. Um, and so we had the plan so that if, you lost connectivity and couldn't talk to anybody, we would know where they were going to go. And then when connectivity came back, we would be able to find them. That was where we were going to be. Um, had to give them lessons on how to identify your latitude and longitude. That was kind of interesting. Some of the first coordinates we received were somewhere in the middle of the ocean until we now you have those numbers reversed and had to show them that. Um, and then um, kind of worked with them, made myself available through WhatsApp, which I'm still in communication with them to this day on it. Um, the goal was to make sure our people were safe, which they were. We have 150, roughly 150 people in country. 
we had four or five that evacuated. Um, we were able to evacuate some under some harrowing circumstances. Uh, one in particular I helped work with, she had to we just find an evacuation route for her between the shelling. <laughs> that was intriguing. And then um, we still are taking care of the patients. That has not stopped. Our doctors were seeing patients by telemedicine. They, we gave them plenty of, the patients got plenty of meds in advance. And understand with HIV, if you're HIV positive, if you stay on the meds, you, you're virally suppressed, you know, you're, you're going to live a long time, subject, of course, to other factors like, you know, a war. But for example, here in the United States, you can be on the meds and live a long, long life. You probably, as one doctor told me, you'll probably have more issues with weight and heart and heart disease than you will with, uh, with, the, with the HIV virus. So it's fully, when it's fully controlled, it's not that dissimilar to diabetes. So our doctors and our staff kept working. They gave patients plenty of meds in advance to make sure they had it. Some of the patients said, why are you doing this? The Russians aren't going to invade and were surprised when they did, as many people were. But everything was done to make sure the patients were taken care of. From my perspective, if our people are okay and we know where they are and we can help them, we try to help them best we can. And then we, um, we just kind of flow with how things happen in the war because that's something you can't control. You turned everybody in your organization into an A-10 warthog. And I know you know what that means. Triple redundancy, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, we did. I, that's, that's interesting you put it that way. Yeah, every, most security guys I know, men and women I know, are also um, business continuity folks. So we were thinking in terms of how do we sustain the operations because the disease, the thing we, we don't want to have happen is the war to cause the disease, disease to get worse, right? That's not what we want to see happen. And um, we don't want our patients to get more sick. And a lot of our patients, uh, understandably, are male. And some of them were going off to fight. Uh, I'm quite certain of that, that they took their meds, went and joined up, and went to fight the Russians. So some of our doctors were I'm fairly confident were helping to treat wounded. So it was, it has been, um, very, very uh, dynamic situation. I could not be more proud of the people that I work with that are in country. I mean, I'm just an enabler here to, to help them get to where they wanted to go, what they need to do. Once this thing starts, there's not as much I can do. Preparing them was my goal, making sure they were ready, uh, which they were as best we could get them. And the interesting thing is from the reports that I received from people in, in the country, it was. You know, one of the things we did was we made sure they had uh, sleeping bags and lanterns and stuff to keep warm and food because we knew they were going to go into, I said, they were going to go into, war, you know, civil war, I'm sorry, Cold War era um, shelters. There's no heat in those. This is the Ukraine in February. It's cold. So one of the reports back we got back was, thank you. We went into the shelter, there was no heat. We were the only ones that had anything to keep us warm. So um, just those sorts of things um, were very helpful. So I'm listening to this as a security practitioner myself, having run global operations for a couple studios. And what I'm hearing from a member perspective is that you had a low 
probability, in other words, your members believed it was a low probability Russia would invade, but you had a high impact if they did. And most security models would just ignore that and say, you know what, uh, it's not going to happen, don't worry about it. You prepared anyway, and certainly there was a cost to that, but I'm not thinking it was a gigantic cost. In other words, you built this operation with triple redundancy that would function well in any situation. Always good to have that sort of triple redundancy model so people can respond themselves. After it was validated that you were correct, did anybody change? Now, by the way, that brought you a lot of street creds, didn't it? We talked about credibility. But after it was validated that you were correct, did that change anybody's modeling for the future? Are they looking at readiness, preparedness models differently now? Yes. Yes, they are. The goal I had when I came here, and this is what I mean, I think I think I... I hope I'm, I'm achieving. It feels like I am, but you never really know until after it's done, um, is to have security be baked into the organization and not bolted on. Uh, old boss I had at Hewlett Packard said, that's the best solution. And I, I captured that and I kept it. And you want it to be something that's organic to the operation, not something that's seen as an addition. If you do that, then it's just the way we do business. It becomes part of that culture, which I think is so important. Once it's a cultural um, value, then it becomes something that you don't have, it's, it's easier to maintain. New people are brought in and they're taught this is how we do things. R.C. Miles, the Global Director of Safety and Security for the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. We're speaking about battle readiness, maintaining operations in conflict zones. Mr. R.C., excellent, excellent show, my friend. I'm very, very impressed uh, with your grasp of this. And uh, I, I know everybody in the foundation is much safer because you're in charge there. Good luck to you, my friend. And uh, touch base with me uh, again and uh, keep me up to date on what's going on. I'd be happy to. And uh, thank you. This was actually my first time doing a podcast. So uh, I want to thank you for making it a very comfortable experience. Excellent. You nailed it, my friend, for the first time, especially. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. <laughs> thank you. William Plummer is a founding member and chief security officer for RaceSecure.com and the former officer in charge of the 8th U.S. Field Army Explosive Ordnance Disposable Control Team. Will Plummer. Welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thanks, Chuck. Glad to be here. Today's topic is remote workforces and how does mail security fit into this? A, a question I really never thought I would ask, but it's interesting. Uh, tell us about this. Yeah, so in the COVID, uh, age of COVID, everybody pretty much ran to the four winds. And with that, uh, everything that had to happen in the office went to the house with them. Just uh, just like the threats, you know, they translated from the office, transitioned from the, uh, the office to the house. So CEO... No longer works in the uh, in the normal office environment. There's still threats. Targets still go or they still get targeted. Let's redefine mail security for me, because I think in the age of COVID, it's a little different than it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at what happened, uh, you know, pre-COVID, you had a security infrastructure in place in the office. Uh, everybody worked behind that wall, worked behind that that security apparatus, whatever it is. And whenever we went to the four winds, we had to restructure how we do physical security when it comes to mail and, and logistics functions that go inside of an organization. So what it looks like now is often, uh, say, a C-suite, for example, the EP team is going to the home ahead of time to make sure that the wife or husband isn't something picking up possible threats. Uh, they're having to transition to a more mobile environment. And with that, uh, everybody's had to, to move to a, to a new posture. 
Can you give me some recent examples of remote workers and successful mail threats? This is something I really never thought about, but obviously your platform is mobile to do this. Um, so a good example, um, if you look at all the protesters and look at everything that happens outside of CEOs' homes, and I'm not going to label any of them here, or look at federal judges um, that are doing the January 6th court cases across the United States, because that's where everybody came from that showed up on January 6th. Um, there's a regular uh, exposure that they have to, to threats if people send directly to their home or directly to them. Um, we've, that's what we do is we find those threats and we keep them from ending up uh, bothering somebody in their home. So tell me how Race Secure handles this. It's, it, I remember when we spoke a few years ago, before COVID, we had a different way to do things. But now there's a new, a new model. Tell me about that. How does it work? So what we do is uh, we put our system and our services in place to really kind of decentralize the security environment. So where we would look to have one or two systems, uh, usually in a, in a corporate setting. Now that we have multiple ones that are put out to deal with um, clusters of people that are under the cover of security. And also there's some new changes on how office offices work. So with you know people coming in one or two days a week, Oftentimes that mail will just sit there until they, they come into to the office environment. So we've implemented some new training and some new basically efforts to help people deal with a large amount of delayed mail and a large amount of mail that's sitting in limbo. In this new age of remote workforces, what can companies do to decrease their threat footprint? Uh, a couple of things. There's a lot of logistics that you can put in place ahead of time, uh, tracking what you're expected to have come in. So you don't have to waste time looking at it. Uh, a lot of people have moved into um, like a forward thinking or an aggressive uh, posture on what uh, sits in their facility. So if you're worried about uh, warshipping or somebody trying to steal your data or hack your system, you probably do not want mail just sitting around for two to three to four weeks while you know people are remote working. Um, we talk a lot about about kind of combining your cyber security threat with your physical security capabilities and how that's a new way of getting in organizations. We have a lot of empty buildings. Those servers are still working and a lot of people are still trying to hack into it. So a new way of doing that is using the mail. Will Plummer, Ray Secure, good information, my friend. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. You have a great one. Todd Selwinski is the Senior Director of Enterprise Risk Management and Corporate Security for West Pharmaceutical Services Incorporated. Mr. Todd Sowinski, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hi, thank you for having me today. Today's topic is digital nomad trends. When COVID struck, I thought, you know what? We're going to have an issue with this two or three years from now. Hopefully, we're in a place where it works. But this has been quite a journey. Nobody expected the entire world to be on the internet in one day, almost literally, right? Nobody expected 50% <laughs> of the people to be working from home still. I think there's been something like a 100% increase in home-based employees between uh, 2019 and 21. It's kind of crazy. What is going on uh, in this field and, and how are employers and employees working to make this work? Well, it's a great topic. And I'll tell you, two years ago, if you, if you mentioned that term, I'd say, what are you talking about? <laughs> the digital nomad, because we were a company that largely was on site. Um, we're a manufacturing company. So all of our team members that are assigned to the manufacturing sites around the world need to come into the plant to make their product every day. And then we have our global headquarters here in Pennsylvania and a few regional headquarters around the world. And most of those office-based roles worked out of the office uh, with the exception of some sales roles. So it wasn't the norm for us to have people working away from a site or a location. 
Um, as the COVID crisis manager, a hat that I wore for about two years, um, you know, we weren't really sure how this was going to go. And we were delaying the decision to really send people home because we had to keep making product. Uh, eventually, you know, we would we would send people home and say, maybe it's for two weeks. And then a week later, we'd say another two weeks. And eventually it was we were coming across too indecisive for our team members and they really needed to make plans. I mean, uh, as you indicated, people weren't used to it and we had to think about home offices. Um, you know, where most of the equipment that team members worked on was here in the building or in the office. So we had a, fortunately, we had already transitioned to laptop computers a year or two earlier. Um, but we had monitors, we had printers, we had files, you know, we had other materials that were still here in the building um, that people needed to do their day-to-day -day jobs. So we had to think about how does everyone get back and bring what they need for the long term? Because we realized the two weeks at a time working remote just wasn't a sustainable method. So eventually we made a decision. Uh, we're going to work indefinitely <laughs> and see how the pandemic goes. I don't think any of us suspected it would go on for two plus years. And still today, um, we were thinking more in the terms of a few months. Um, and a few months, as you know, turned into a year or more, and we got to thinking about, uh, you know, what are the other implications of people working away from the office? Uh, things like uh, legal status. You know, we, we, we learned, I guess, much to our surprise and others, that people were not only working from home, that perhaps they relocated their homes or they were working from a family uh, member's residence or they relocated geographically to a new state or even a new country um, and really didn't think to ask and didn't understand what the implications of that decision might be personally on themselves and on the company. How did employees react to this? I'm going to call it a newfound freedom in a way. Did everybody like it? Because I've mm -hmm. heard a lot of people don't necessarily like working from home. Well, I'm one of those people, Chuck. Um, I, I tried it. Um, <laughs> I did it for a few months and it just wasn't effective for me. I've always been the kind of person that wanted to be on site or on location. And I guess, fortunately, as the crisis manager and head of security, along with some other roles, I had a good reason to be in the building to monitor things. Um, so I made my way back and, and reestablished my permanent residence in the building. Um, and, and, you know, I'd, I'd eventually talk to colleagues. And to your point, some really enjoyed the flexibility that it gave them, especially with the challenges of schools and daycares closing. Um, and now you had, you know, working parents that needed to think about being part time school teachers. Um, or, you know, perhaps taking over the daycare responsibilities that they took for granted, you know, by, by dropping their children off at a daycare that wasn't open anymore. Um, so, so some folks found the flexibility uh, welcoming uh, to be able to handle some of those additional responsibilities. Others found it very stressful um, to now have to work full time and try to be a part time at home teacher and, you know, be a, a daycare provider. Um, so really, I think it depended on everyone's situation and what we realized talking, you know, with, with our colleagues and and I had very frequent touch points with our executive team 
is that everyone is going to look at this and respond to it differently. So flexibility became the, the, the key word. And really, we've evolved as a company, Chuck. Uh, there's no expectation now that everyone is back to the office at any point in time. We've maintained a permanent flexibility. Now, first, that's based on roles. So if you have a role where you have to be on a location to produce a product, for example, um, then you need to be on location. If you're in a role where you can have flexibility um, and there really isn't a requirement to do a job on site, then we've come up with some different categories. We've come up with the, the hybrid model where perhaps uh, you know an employee feels uh, comfortable coming in a couple to a few days a week um, to a fully remote model to those who really adapted well to the full-time remote and they've been very productive and successful working from home um, to, to those like myself again who want to be more full-time on site so we have a couple of different options it caused us to relook at our footprint in the buildings um, to realign some of the office space, the cubicles, to create what we call neighborhoods, to create a welcoming space for when people do come back, uh, that maybe they don't have the same permanent office uh, or cubicle or desk that they had when they when they you know first left due to COVID, um, but they have a space that's functional for them on the days that they do come to work. And they're able to create maybe a, a place to, to put down their anchor. Uh, and and we, we talk to departments about anchor days, about perhaps, you know, a department comes in on, say, a Tuesday, and that's the anchor day. And that's the, the day that the department would all come together for those in-person collaboration sessions that are more effective in person. But the other four days or, or three days, what have you, you know, they have the flexibility to decide, do they want to come in or do they want to stay working remote? We've also all gotten very good at using technology, um, you know, whether it be Teams or Zoom or what have you. So once everyone got comfortable working through our platform, which was Teams, um, we realized you can run very effective meetings digitally. Uh, the challenge, Chuck, became that the meetings became back to back to back to back. And there was really no room for that break, right? There was also no room for that hallway conversation um, that you may have going from one meeting to another. So, so while there were some advantages to working virtually, um, there were some challenges with it as well. Let's talk about employee risk. As security practitioners, mm -hmm. we're, always, we're always evaluating risk to employees in all kinds right. of ways, physical, cyber, so on. Have you found that... Uh, well, risk to employees has changed. I'm not going to say increased or decreased because that's could be subjective, but do you think it's sure. different? Are you finding new emerging risks that you hadn't thought about in this model? Certainly. In fact, Chuck, you mentioned early on duty of care, right? We have a responsibility to care for our employees wherever it is they're working. And, you know, now that they weren't necessarily on site, they were at their home or, or they were working from a, a, a more of a, a remote destination, a, you know, a family member's house or a friend's or they were, you know, in a, in a vacation spot, if you will, working, there's always the concern of, you know, one, do we have a presence? Do we have a, a legal entity in that location? 
And do we have awareness of what threats or risks might happen in those areas? You know, perhaps they're in an area that's subject to a hurricane threat and where they normally worked, you know, they, they didn't have that, that risk or that threat. So we had to think about our mass communication system because no longer is it everyone in the office saying, hey, we have this issue. It's people spread around multiple states or multiple countries. And how do we increase our own situational awareness of the different risks and threats that are tied with some of the geographical risks, whether it's a weather event, another natural event, or even what we've seen recently, unfortunately, with some of the geopolitical events, uh, thinking Russia, Ukraine. And, uh, you know, we may not have a legal presence, but do we have anyone working remotely in one of those areas or another impacted area? So I think from a from a situational awareness standpoint, it caused our security team to relook at how we were um, how we were conducting duty of care. So that that certainly is a challenge, and it's really broadened our awareness. I think as a security team um, and as a company, um, you know, realizing that it's not just about these handful of locations we operate in anymore. It's about a more global perspective of security, of safety, of liability. So, you know, I got, uh, I got a couple Airbnbs, and 50% of the people that stay with us are working from home. And they take a, what do you call <laughs> it, a, a workcation, whatever the term is, right? And, of sure. course, I have a good setup <laughs> right. for them, a desk. And I never really thought about right. this until you just said it, but my duty mm-hmm. of care as the landlord is to make sure that they're safe. I, I do do that, and we have a pretty safe right. environment here. But on your side, you have to kind of understand where your employee is inside my Airbnb and how that may not make them safe. That's a very interesting perspective. That has to be a huge challenge as well. Absolutely. You know, we have a very robust uh, HS&E health safety team that, that actually I'm part of. And, you know, we think about here in the U.S., the OSHA requirements, right, of of meeting all those uh, requirements that were required to by law here in the U.S. And of course, our buildings are fully compliant because they were built to purpose. Uh, same thing with our factories. Um, and then, of course, you go to Europe and Asia Pacific, they have their own specific health and safety uh, laws that you have to make sure that, um, you know, we're, we're mindful of for the benefit of our employees and, and for our own sake, for our own liability. Um, so that's some of the, you know, the personal safety and security, but there's also other security concerns, uh, you know, cybersecurity. So now you're connected perhaps to uh, many, many different, uh, you know, networks to be able to do your work. And is the home internet, is the, uh, you know, hotel internet or the Airbnb internet that you're connecting to, uh, you know, compatible? Um, and secure enough for us to send sensitive company data over. Um, so that is another challenge. And another thing is just protection of intellectual property. You know, it's one thing to have confidential information, trade secrets, et cetera, in your office or on your desk or in your filing cabinet. But now it's on the, you know, the dining room table, your new office or you know the you know your family member's house or the Airbnb you're located in, and how are we controlling and ensuring we're protecting 
that intellectual property, trade secrets, et cetera. Uh, this is fascinating to me. It, it really, the scope has broadened so much from when we first started this. Let me ask you this. Is it sustainable over a long period of time? What's, what's your personal evaluation? Your project seems like it's very successful, but this is still a lot of moving parts that we have to kind of constantly evaluate. Yeah, I agree with you, Chuck. It is. I mean, we, we learn new things each day and each week um, as the pandemic has continued to evolve. You know, the, the, the way people work uh, and live um, has continued to evolve. So we've, we've just got to constantly monitor it. And, you know, sometimes you hear that term, the new normal, right? Well, what is the new normal? It's not like it was two or three years ago, for sure. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we just have to really listen to our employees, learn from their experiences, uh, to be able to understand what the different challenges. And quite frankly, Chuck, we didn't talk about the opportunities. Um, you know, once we realized we can do this effectively uh, over the last two years and forever, how long we're going to continue it into the future, um, we've been able to now expand our talent search where we might have previously thought about, well, if we're located in Pennsylvania, uh, at least our headquarters, we can only hire people who live in Pennsylvania to work here um, because we didn't have legal entities everywhere. We didn't have a nexus established uh, in the U.S. And the same thing can apply overseas. Um, but now we've been able to bring in personnel that live in California or 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 other states that we didn't have a presence before and it really expanded the uh, the pool of available talent um, which has been a really positive impact for our company even on my team when i'm looking at security business continuity most of the team that i've built over the last two years do not work in our inside physically our global headquarters or reside in pennsylvania we've been able to establish legal entities in el you know in other uh, states or, or countries that have, have been able to allow me to attract even better and more diverse talent. Mr. Todd, fascinating subject and really an engaging conversation. I, I really learned a lot, which uh, makes my job even more interesting. Good luck to you guys. Uh, keep me informed on this. I think it's evolving, but I agree with you. As in most things with life, Good things eventually evolve out of bad things. That's just kind of how it works out on the whole balance. And I think this is going to be positive for everybody in the long run. And uh, thanks so much for talking to us and coming on Security Management Highlights. Absolutely. Thank you, Chuck. My pleasure.